Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Interventional Endoscopist. I'm your host, Ramon Kavlo Suchdev. Um, thank you for listening so far. For those of you who have subscribed, it's appreciated. Um, today's topic is going to be dedicated towards, um, or should I say geared towards, general GI fellows. Um, and I want to talk about applying for a fourth-year or advanced endoscopy fellowship and some of the things that uh, you need to look out for and watch out for. Um, we're currently in the middle of the interview season for people who are currently applying. So this is for this group of people who are entering GI fellowship or first or second years and um, are debating whether or not they want to do therapeutic endoscopy. Um, so uh, with that being said, for those of you who are listening, it might be a good idea to share this with your friends who are in those categories so that um, yeah, they can get this. Uh, usually um, people aren't aware of these kind of opportunities to listen in, and um, yeah, so hopefully it'll help somebody. Uh, my background, uh, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I am an interventional endoscopist in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and I'm also the program director of a fourth-year endoscopy fellowship. So I have a little bit of a different insight from as one person who's gone through the system and now somebody who actually reviews applications and uh, letters of recommendations and whatnot. So let me go ahead and start uh, talking a little bit about my experience. So I started General GI Fellowship in 2006, and then I um, finished or graduated in 2009. Um, and I did my fourth year Therapeutic Endoscopy Fellowship at Northwestern uh, under the tutelage of doctors John Martin, Sri Kamanduri, and Raj Kaswani, and had a really good experience. But the application process was extremely frustrating. Um, back then, the ASGE match did not exist. It was hard to find information about what programs were there, especially if you were trained in a program that didn't have a fourth-year fellowship. So in my situation at Memphis, uh, we had really good training and we had really good uh, exposure to ERCP with minimal exposure to EUS. Um, and uh, it was there if you wanted. It was very difficult to do with our schedules. And, um, you know, we had one attending who was fourth year trained and he's kind of the one, uh, and a shout out to him, Dr. Fariz Farouk, who's currently in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, he's the one who encouraged me to apply for a fourth year fellowship. Um, the way that kind of came about for me, so another kind of quirky fact about me is that before I did GI, I did transplant hepatology. And um, one of the reasons I did that was I didn't get into GI fellowship right away. It was extremely competitive. Um, you know, I finished my internal medicine residency in 2003. And in 2003 to four, I did a transplant hepatology year at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, my wife uh, matched into oncology. She was a year behind me in residency. And so it kind of worked out when she was a third year resident and found out where she was matching, which was Memphis. I was a fourth year fellow. I was unsuccessful in getting a uh, fourth year fellow in hepatology. I was unsuccessful in getting into general GI. And so I uh, looked for jobs and it happened that Memphis had an opening uh, for a hepatologist. And so I joined faculty there. Um, so, you know, weird thing was that when I uh, was there, I was the youngest attending by about 12 or 15 years. 
I was younger than some of the general GI fellows, and I kind of was by myself this whole time there. But, you know, as as it worked out, um, they were kind enough to offer me a spot in their general GI fellowship program. And um, I started that in 2006, after two years of being an attending. And one of the weird things about that was my colleagues who are my co-attendings, now became my attendings, and I became their student. So that dynamic was a little weird, but one of the things that they did for me was that they um, they actually didn't make me do a lot of hepatology because I was already teaching it. So in the second year of my program, so typically in the third year, uh, two of the three fellows are were allowed to do ERCP. Um, and so when I was a second year, it happened that one of the fellows was pregnant and she didn't want to do ERCP. And she actually just wanted to do general GI and um, wanted some exposure, but didn't really want to do it in practice. And so there was a spot for another fellow. And in my year, there were three fellows and they would only have been able to train two. So what they ended up doing was allowing me to do ERCP in my second year. Sorry for the long-winded story, but when I was doing that, my attending, Dr. Farouk, was like, hey, you know, you, you kind of got a knack for this. You should really do a, if you want to do this in a career, you should really do this as um, through a fourth-year fellowship and get formal, you know, training and then go from there. Um, you know, and up until that point, I had really just decided I was going to be a, a full-time transplant hepatologist and, and gastroenterologist. And, you know, one of the reasons for doing the GI fellowship was that my salary was roughly half of everybody else because I didn't scope. So that was kind of, you know, I had to do the fellowship to legitimize myself in hepatology. As luck would have it, you know, he talked to me about a fourth year. I initially poo-pooed it in my head and said, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, we had a, I think my daughter was two at the time. And I went home that day, and my wife said, what are you thinking about? Because I kept looking at the TV and wasn't really paying attention to much. I just kind of was in my lost in my thoughts. I said, well, you know, uh, Freeze said this is what I should do. And she said, you should do it. And I said, well, that might mean I have to, you know, go away for a year. And, you know, she was like, no, we can figure that out. So my wife actually supported me, which is important because I think for those of you who are considering applying for a fellowship, that's a key key point does your family support you you know do, will your spouse or significant other uh, be okay with you having to do a one-year thing because it may not be possible for your spouse to come with you you know and if you have children and you have to go and commute and all that kind of stuff that's something that you absolutely have to consider um, so anyway uh, freeze kind of told me about what to do and you know I applied for different spots and this is what was frustrating you know you have to kind of peck and hunt on the internet at that time to find out what programs existed and then at that time it was a free-for-all you kept emailing the program director maybe they responded maybe they didn't and um, you know one day maybe I'll share my <laughs> full experience but essentially to make a very long story short because my pathway to getting into Northwestern was, just, uh, you know, I, I was basically a pain in the butt. You know, I, I emailed the program director almost once a week until he, you know, gave me an answer. And I went to DDW and I stalked him and I went to every presentation he was part of and, and I followed him. And, you know, he's probably like, initially was thinking, why is this guy with the turban following me around? But eventually he stopped. He says, hey, I know who you are. I've got your application. I'm going to give you an interview. It's just that we're running behind. So 
you know, there was no timeline is my point. There was no, no way to get information, no timeline, no set process, no set application. Everybody wanted their own application. Everybody wanted something different. Um, everybody had different expectations. So it was really, you know, crazy. But I think over the last few years, what's really helped uh, fellows now is the ASGE match. And the ASGE match opens for fellow applicants around December um, every year. And then um, you're able to identify programs. And I think in January, you can actually start um, start your application process, you know, and, and then um, go from there. Um, so, you know, generally what happens from our end is that and, and, and this is what's going on for 2024 positions is, you know, we were allowed to start entering our information in October of 2022. And by November 15th, we had as programs to finalize our entry into the, um, into the system. January 11th uh, of this year, 2023, so for 2024 spots, a year and a half before they start, the applicants are allowed to get in, look at the... Um, um, programs, read them, re, you know, read through them, kind of decide what they want to make a map. February, you have to complete your application. And in March, we are allowed to offer interviews. Uh, June is when uh, rank order lists are due for uh, the applicant. And in uh, June 21st and June 23rd uh, is when we are allowed uh, to or finalize our, uh, well, actually, not. that's not when we're allowed to. That's when we have to finalize our rank order list. And then in July 10th, the results come out. So you can see it's about a seven-month ordeal. For an applicant, it's about six months. And for, um, uh, you know, the program's about you know, eight months. So you kind of have to familiarize yourself with that. So I think this is a good time for this podcast to come out because you want to start thinking about it over the next six months. But my first question to anybody who ever says, hey, uh, Dr. Sajdev or Sach, you know, whatever, uh, I want to be a fourth-year fellow. So the first question I always ask everybody is why, you know. And, and, and it's, you know, the most common answer is, well, I like the procedures. And that's great, you know. And if you love those procedures, you absolutely should apply for this program. That's what you need to do. If you're, if you're a procedural, procedurally oriented person, and you like cutting edge technology, then you, you need to do it. But make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. You know, some people I've heard over the years say, well, I, I want to do a th therapeutic year because I, I know that I'm going to make a, a lot more money over time. And, and that's not true. Actually, if you talk to most interventionalists, uh, they make the same as their colleagues. There's not really much of a bonus Sure, you might get a little bit of a, a bump in your pay if you're employed because you could be the director of a program or something like that. But if you're in the private world or if you're in an RVU model, you're actually disincentivized to do the therapeutic procedures because the RVUs assigned to uh, therapeutic procedures are not uh, not on par with the time that you spend to do those procedures. So, example. The number of RVUs for an ERCP um, is around five, and the number of RVUs for a colonoscopy is around three and a half to four. And if you think about it, you know, if you're doing colonoscopies in your ASC and you can do in one hour two of them, uh, sometimes, you know, you can do up to maybe two and a half in an hour if you're, you're really cooking that day. 
Um, but in ERCP at the hospital, even if you are really good and you can do one in 10 to 15 minutes, when you talk about anesthesia turnover, nurse turnover, getting the patient into the room and out of the room, you're talking an hour to uh, 90 minutes. So, you know, what you're being paid for that hour of work versus what your colleagues who are in the ambulatory surgical center doing uh, two cases, it's it's not the same. So, you know, if you're doing it for money, uh, it's the wrong choice. But if you're doing it for the love of it, that's the right choice, you know. And so I always uh, tell uh, college students who are applying for medical school or uh, medical students who are applying for residency, if you love what you're doing, and this is an old adage, but if you love what you're doing, you're not working a single day of your life. You know, so I think you have to make sure that you really, really know what you want to do. Also, um, you also have to kind of think about the future. What is it you want to do in therapeutic endoscopy? When I applied in 2008, uh, it was enough to say, I want to do ERCP in the U.S. because basically that's all that was there, you know. Um, yes, EMR was there, but ESD wasn't a thought in most people's uh, minds in the U.S. I mean, yes, there were some centers doing it, but... 90 to 99% of the centers in the United States were even thinking about EST. POEM was not even a blip on most people's radars. Um, you know, forget about therapeutic EUS. You know, if you were thinking about doing a gastrojejunostomy or a gallbladder drainage or something along those lines, they thought you were crazy. So, you know, when I applied, and, and it's not that long ago, really you were applying for an ERCP and EUS fellowship. Today, in my personal opinion, um, you know, that's what, you know, you have so many options, but I also feel like five or 10 years down the road, we're not going to be able to just say, do an advanced endoscopy or a therapeutic endoscopy fellowship. You're going to have to choose, I think, in five to 10 years that I want to be an advanced tissue resection person. So you'll be learning EMR, ESD techniques. I want to be a third space endoscopist. I want to be an endoscopic oncologist. I want to be a biliary specialist. So I think the the field is going to get further divided. That's just my prediction. Obviously, I, God knows what is really will, will happen, but I, it just makes sense with the you know amount of uh, procedures that are coming our way. You know, endobariatrics itself is going to be another field. So you know, I, I think you have to kind of have an idea of what you want your future to be, and it's okay not to know. Because most of the advanced endoscopy fellowships are not going to be able to let you specialize into those uh, realms at the moment. I suspect that, you know, if you want to be really good at ESD and you go into a fourth-year fellowship, most programs aren't going to have you ready to do it independently for a complex lesions. Um, although that's changing because, you, you know, if you pay attention on social media, you're seeing more and more people are doing ESD. And I think that opportunity to learn is better. But even endobariatrics, I think you're going to have to do specialized training in it. Again, that's for the most part. There are exceptions. If you train with Dr. Thompson over at, um, you know, in, in uh, Harvard, uh, he probably has enough cases that his fellows are completely competent to do those procedures on his own in endobariatrics. If you train with Dr. Fukami over at Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, and you do his advanced endoscopy, uh, sorry, his advanced tissue resection tract, you'll be ready to do those. But those programs are only in, in very select centers, and there's not a lot of those around. So you have to know kind of what you want to do with your career, and, and that kind of ties into how you apply or why, you know, when you apply. So when you apply, you have to kind of look at these programs and say, okay, what is it going to offer me, and what's it going to set me up for? Remember that 
even if you just do a quote-unquote general therapeutic endoscopy fellowship, that that program is actually going to set you up and give you the building blocks to do the next thing. And an example I give my fellows, um, let's say you want to do ESD. Well, we don't have a lot of cases in my program that we can train somebody, but what we tell them is that we do EMRs, and in those EMRs, you're learning to properly lift the lesions and assess the lesions. So that's a step that a key thing that you need to learn for ESD. You're doing ERCPs. We do sphincterotomies and needle knives. Well, if you can learn how to use a needle knife in an ERCP, that's a building block for uh, ESD use of knives. Uh, clips. You know, you have to close a defect, or maybe you're going to use some of these uh, clips at the DAT clip or, or whatnot to hold your lesion open. Well, you're learning, you know, how to clip in EMRs, and you're going to use that step. The next one is, you know, maybe you're going to use a device like the Dilumin. Well, if you're doing a single or double balloon endoscopies, that's a building block to using a balloon and working with a balloon. So my point is that, and, and these are very extreme examples, but my point is that every therapeutic endoscopy fellowship will give you building blocks to do the next thing. You may just have to seek additional training. So when you decide to apply, the best resource you're going to have today is to go to the ASGE website, and uh, you want to go to asge.org, go to the Education tab, and you want to go under Training and Trainees, and then look for Advanced Endoscopy Fellowship. The entire timeline is there, how to log in, how to join, all that's there. I don't believe you have to be a member of ASGE uh, to actually um, uh, you know, apply, so that's important to know, but... Generally, fellows don't have to pay much to be members anyway. I do recommend you become a member. If you want to be a therapeutic endoscopist, ASG is definitely a society that you need to belong to. Um, they're going to want, you know, make sure you have your medical school transcripts, the same stuff that you did when you applied for residency and fellowship, but make sure you have your CV, uh, want your USMLE scores, your residency completion certificates. Once again, you're going to have to write another personal statement, um, you know, and I'll get into that in just a moment. Um, and if you are a foreign graduate or an international medical graduate, you'll need your ECFMG certificate. Um, they want a photo. They encourage it. I think that's kind of a... <clears throat> I, I've got mixed feelings about pictures, but um, <laughs> um, it's okay to put them in there. Um, and then you want your references. And I'll talk about those in a second, too. Um, they're going to generally want three references. Uh, the one thing I'll say about reference letters um, or letter recommendations, um, as a person who's read, I, don't, I think I've read probably about 400, and I read each and every application myself. I will divide them up amongst my partners for them all to review, but I review every single one myself. And I've got kind of a quirky memory sometimes. I, I still remember I read one that really uh, uh, an applicant had described a very personal situation in their life. And um, I just, it just stuck with me. And one time at DDW, uh, we were uh, at this event, and this person was behind me, and I turned around, and it was the person who applied for the fellowship. And I said, hey, you're so-and-so. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's me. And then I said, well, you know, I read your letter of recommendation, and I, I sorry, your, your personal statement, and... Your letter of recommendation, and this doctor said this about you, and you said this in your personal statement. So, you know, the thing is that these things do need to stand out. But for the letter of recommendation, the one thing I'll say is of the hundreds I've read, um, they almost all read exactly the same. 
you know, some people really rely on these, but I, I'm not sure how, because I can remember one time that I got a bad letter of recommendation. In fact, the physician who wrote the letter of recommendation basically said that the applicant was a con artist and, and shouldn't really be in a program. Now, that's not the exact words they used, but it's definitely, that was the tone of it, you know? And the rest of the time, though, it, people have similar letters. This is a solid guy. He's a great guy. She's a great girl. Uh, they will thrive. They will be an asset to your program. So, it, you know, the letter of recommendation is important to have because at the very least, they'll tell me as a program director that you're not a psycho. But also, I think the thing that really matters is if that letter of recommendation, if that person really, really believes in you, you need to ask them to make a phone call for you. I think that stands out more than anything. Um, obviously, it's a little intrusive to get a phone call, but at the same time, if that person, your mentor, believes in you that much, they should be willing to pick up the phone. And, and if they don't, don't, I mean, don't lose hope. That doesn't mean anything. It's just that what you want to know is that everyone's letters of recommendation read the same. Um, there's very few of them that stand out, and usually they stand out for negative reasons. Uh, personal statement, again, same thing, kind of what I was talking about, the other uh, applicant. Their letters, their uh, personal statement stood out to me because they had talked about a very personal uh, situation, and it was heartwarming. And so, you know, not everyone's going to go through a challenge like that. Um, this this individual had um, a form, was a cancer survivor, frankly, and, um, you know, Obviously, you can't make anything up, but the, the hundreds of personal statements, I would say majority of them talk about growing up in an underprivileged area or at home and watching some family member get sick and how that inspired them to become a physician. And, you know, most of the people will tell me, especially with, you know, and I'm an international medical graduate myself, but a lot of the international medical graduates will say, you know, I want to go back to my home country to do this. Well, I can call BS on that because 95% of the people never go back to their home country to do what they say they're going to do. It's actually very rare. Now, that's not something I'm going to hold against somebody, but my point is that when you write a personal statement, if you think that telling the a reader that the reason you want to be a therapeutic endoscopist is you want to go back to your village in whatever country and uh, treat the people there, that that's very noble, but the reality is probably about eight people say that in every application cycle. And you know, you meet those people and they never go back and do that. So uh, again, not saying you don't need to write that, but just keep that in mind. And also most of the personal statements are very similar. So definitely try your best to be unique and obviously uh, make sure you get uh, it reviewed. You have friends or parents or family members or siblings look at it, check for grammatical errors, all the, all the stuff that you normally would do. Please don't use chat GPT to write your personal statement. Not that most of us would ever pick up on it. Maybe we would. Uh, but I think uh, chat GPT and those type of things can be useful. But um, I think eventually if everybody starts using chat GPT to do a personal statement, they'll be identical. And that'll be, that'll be annoying. Um, it's already hard enough to pick a good fellow. <laughs> so anyway... Um, so those are the two things. Scores, uh, USMLE scores, you know, they're, they're nice to know, but they're not, I don't think I've ever picked anybody based off their USMLE scores. In fact, the pa application packet we get from ASGE on our end, uh, the first page is an introduction page with the applicant's photo 
and then it's their medical diploma, and then it's their transcripts, and then it's their CV, uh, which is, some people can be 10 to 15 pages long, and others it's three pages, um, lots of abstracts, you know, all those things are nice to do, but honestly, they don't, at least for my program, they don't make a big difference. And again, I'm a little bit different because my program is based in private practice and we're not looking for the next great accommodation. We're, we're basically looking for good people. Um, some programs want people with research potential and that's totally fine. That's, that's what they're, that's what makes their program tick. Um, so, you, you know, you don't need to tone it down for a program or whatnot. You just, if you've done the work, please display it. And it's always good. It can't hurt you. Um, and then your letters of recommendation, personal statement. So it's a pretty long packet and, you know, we, we go through all of it. Um, some more tips kind of, uh, you know, know what you want to do. As I mentioned earlier, know what your field is. Also know the programs. The nice thing about the ASG um, website is when you go to look through the programs, we are required as programs to supply the last 12 months of procedural data. So it's no longer enough to you know say to a fellow applicant, yeah, we do about 1,000 ERCPs, and you get there as a fellow, and you're really only doing 200 ERCPs or something like that. I think there's a lot of data to be gleaned on that. You can learn exactly how many EMRs, ESDs, general GI cases, et cetera, EUS, ERCP that the program does, and that's important for you to know because depending on what you want to do in your career, if you want to be a well-rounded therapeutic endoscopist, then you need to go to a well-rounded program. If you want to be an ESD god, you need to go to a program where they're doing a lot of ESDs. So I think that's extremely important for you. Also, get involved in your societies. It really, really helps. Um, you know, getting involved in ASG and now FIGHT, which is a new society that kind of is focused for therapeutic endoscopists. And shout out to them. They had a phenomenal uh, fellows program at DDW where I think eight different fellows uh, presented cases to um, a huge room of people with up to 200 people at a time. Somewhere between 100 to 200. It was kind of a come and go type thing. And... Um, you know, it's a great way to, for you to meet uh, mentors in, in both through ASG and a fight. And so I think those are extremely important. In your second year, you really want to start trying to get involved in videos uh, with your uh, um, attendings. You want to start recording cases and trying to find unique things and looking for things to present, uh, publish in video GIE. Obviously, traditional research is important too. Um, and so both those things are going to help. One thing that I've noticed a lot over the last few years is social media helps. If you're pretty robust and good with Twitter or, or TikTok or Instagram, and people kind of know who you are through that, um, it's going to help you in your application. So I, I think if you have a knack for that, definitely you know pursue that and, and start following program directors and you know, commenting on their cases, asking questions, and being interactive with people. People kind of get an idea of who you are just through social media. Um, obviously, follow all the rules of social media. Don't do anything stupid. Don't say anything racist or sexist or uh, controversial. Just talk about cases and, you know, keep your social commentary down to a minimum. Um, you know, if, if you, you know, you, you don't want to be uh, applying and we look you up on social media and we see that, you know, you did something crazy when you were in high school, you know, so just, just uh, be smart with that and just like anybody else. And I've talked about the personal statement. So you get all that stuff together, you apply for your program and you know, you let, you let 
the endoscopy gods and decide what's going to happen. And, you know, roughly about 70 plus programs on average, about one and a half spots per program, maybe one. So there's probably about 85 spots a year. And I, I believe that total applications are about 150. Uh, ASGE has the data on the match about how many people apply, but roughly you can expect a two to one ratio. Um, or, or actually, I'd say a 1.5 to 1 ratio. So 1.5 acceptances, uh, I, I'm sorry, take that back, not 1.5, uh, three acceptances to one um, non-matched candidate. So um, generally, when, we, when the program is over as program directors, we, are, we have access to the list of candidates who are unmatched, and that's about 25 to 30 people, right? And the match list is about 85 to 90, so maybe three to one odds. Um, that, that, that's, uh, you know, so if you match, then you just start getting ready for your program, talk to your current attendings, like, hey, I'm going to therapeutic endoscopy fellowship, I matched, would you allow me to do more cases with you? Because a lot of the hesitancy in general GI programs is that with all these therapeutic fellowships available, really don't want to train people in EUS or ERCP because you know, why are people doing fourth year specialties if we're going to, you know, give people just exposure? And and there's an argument to be made. It's a completely separate discussion. Maybe a podcast interview I might do with somebody is, do you, should we be training general GI fellows in basic EUS and ERCP, or should we only reserve that for fourth years? Um, you know, there's, it's a whole pro and con debate, not anything I want to get in today, but in general, what most programs are doing is they're not training their fellows in ERCP and EUS uh, because they, they know that there's so many fourth-year graduates coming out. Whether or not that's enough to, uh, again, I'm going to temper this, whether or not that's enough to uh, uh, meet the needs of the communities and the society, that's a different story. Uh, but that's the thought process. And um, I think that if you... Uh, if you uh, are matched, most attendings are like, hey, yeah, go ahead, work with me on this ERCP or work with me on this EMR, et cetera. So com important to start you know, working towards that. Also start looking for opportunities to go to courses once you've matched. Boston Scientific does a new fellows matching, uh, a new fellows uh, uh, course that you can look into getting into. It's the fourth year endoscopy fellowship passport. Generally, they want you to have started your fellowship to do it, but sometimes spots go unfilled and they may have an opening. Rocky Mountain, of course, is another one that does a lot of things. Any hands-on course you can go to. Um, a lot of times you can go to them for free because the industry will pay for it. But if you go to the ASGE ones and, and, and uh, like a DDW one, you'll have to pay for it or your program will. So keep that consideration in, in mind is, you know, the cost of doing this. But as many hands-on courses you can go to before your fellowship will make you better. If you don't match, don't worry. You can always re-enter. However, you know, my program, I'll give you an example. Our program, we've, our fellow number 10, and of my 10 fellows, only two actually matched. The other eight I picked up off the, uh, did not match list. Some of those guys came off cycle because at one point when we were doing two fellows, we had one fellow starting in June and the other fellow starting in January. So obviously there's no match to start in January. So a lot of those guys were coming off the uh, did not match list. Um, but, you know, of my, I think, 10 fellows, I believe six, five or six of them, six of them started 
traditionally, and only a two of those are matched. So, um, you know, programs like mine, we're looking for good people. We're not looking, you know, for everyone's uh, shiny coin. We're just looking for someone who wants to work hard, be good, and, and learn, you know. So there's a program out there for everybody. If you love it and you didn't match, stick with it. Um, there's tons of people out there who didn't get in on their first attempt. I mean, I, mean, I didn't get into GI for my first three to four attempts. So, um, you know, you, you have to stick with it. Um, and, you know, after you do your fellowship, I mean, another podcast that we'll talk about is what, now that you've done a fellowship, now what, you know? But in conclusion, hopefully this uh, podcast has given you a little bit of insight of my view as a program director, as well as what I think should work for people. Um, you know, please feel free to tweet me at, at suchdavemd, S-A-C-H-D-E-V-M-D, uh, if you have any questions, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, not really on TikTok, but those ones are personal. I don't really check them very often. So if you want to get in touch with me, such Dave MD or LinkedIn, um, I generally will respond to almost everybody. A lot of times, if I am not connected with you, then I don't know that you sent me a message, so I don't always catch it right away. I think today I responded to somebody who messaged me about two weeks ago. So but I will get back in touch with you. So if you have questions, reach out. Um, you know, I can also be happy to guide anybody with any, you know, advice or anything like that. Um, also, one other thing I would recommend is looking at joining ASG, but also really look at Fight. And Fight is, I believe it's free for um, uh, general GI fellows. And there's a really good mentorship opportunities with both societies. Um, they're both led by fantastic people. Uh, fight is, uh, you know, chaired by Dr. Lauren and 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 uh, Dr. Michelle Kahila, Sham Tucker, Neil Sharma, Monica Gadande. The, all these, all these uh, um, uh, folks, and Dr. Garothra in Seattle. So all these guys are really, really well established. And ASG, I don't even need to tell you guys who's in that, but it's just a therapeutic endoscopy uh, place as well. Um, so support those societies, join them, look through them for mentorship opportunities and, and go from there. Um, and again, if you're struggling um, and mentally or you have stress about these type of things, reach out, talk to somebody. Uh, you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't get into a therapeutic fellowship. But, you know, if you want something, work hard for it. But also watch out for your mental health. It's not everything that, you know, not everything revolves around medicine or around life or around uh, your work life. You have more to it. So reach out if you're struggling mentally or need any advice. But once again, thank you. Hopefully this was informative. If you liked it and you're still listening at this point, then please subscribe. It means you liked it. And um, uh, just spread the word. Share with friends who you may think, who you think may benefit from this. So thank you again. And uh, until next time.